We're continuing to think in these autumn lectures of the person of Christ and tonight the two natures of Christ. I'm going to read before uh, I introduce our speaker from John's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning to read at verse 1. So John, chapter 1, beginning to read at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world. And through the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom, is, of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity once again to come into your presence and to seek your face. We thank you for creating us and for all the blessings of this life. We thank you for preserving us to this very day. We thank you for your word, the Holy Scriptures. And we thank you for revealing yourself to us through your living word, Jesus Christ 
fully God and fully man. Help us, we pray, to gain more insight into the very great truth and wonderful mystery of the person of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for bringing your servant here this evening to be with us, to speaking with us. We pray you'll take his thoughts, his study, and his preparation, and give him that liberty and freedom. Help him to reveal to us something of the mysteries and the truth of our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus. And we pray that as a result of this, we may love the Lord Jesus Christ more, follow him more really and truly, and obey him more fully in all that we think and do and say. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. It's a very great pleasure to welcome tonight Dr. Gerald Bray, who may well be familiar to some of you, certainly through his writings. I think this is his first, certainly official visit to the Christian Institute, and maybe to the to Newcastle upon He's been once before, I think, but sort of, a long time ago. So he's fairly new to the area. As I tried to explain to you last week, he is the only Anglican on our list of speakers on this occasion, on these occasions. And I said last week that he was the only Englishman, but that's not quite right. He tells me that he's a, a quarter of each, Welsh, Scottish, English, and Irish. So I'll get him to explain that to you if you want to know that. Um, it's a great privilege for, for us to have him with us tonight. He's very well known indeed to George Curry. Uh, as you know from our brochure, he is the Director of Research for the Latimer Trust. He's currently based in Cambridge and is also a research professor at the Beeson Divinity School in Stanford University in the USA. He's going to speak to us for about an hour, as, as is a custom, and he, he also says he's content for you to put questions to him after he's finished. So we very much look forward to his talk tonight. We welcome him, and I'm sure we've much to learn from him. So, Dr. Bray, welcome, and thank you for coming. <clears throat> well, thank you very much. Can everyone hear me all right? Um, I came to what I thought was the frozen north, but it really uh, isn't quite, is it? So um, we'll try to not send, send you to sleep too quickly. The topic that I've been given to discuss tonight, the two natures of Christ, can really perhaps best be understood as an extended commentary on that passage of scripture which was just read for us, and in particular uh, on uh, verse 14 where John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. I extrapolate from that, we beheld his glory in the flesh. How is it possible to see the glory of God in human flesh? How is it possible for 
a single person, one person, to be both God and a man at the same time. You see, how can you put these two together uh, in a way that makes sense? Now, of course, if I say it like that, you say to yourself, well, yes, of course, we understand that. Um, you know, it's very simple. Did you come all this way just to say that? Uh, you know, uh, let's go home. But when you start to think about it, when you start to ask questions about it, to say, what does it involve? You see, how, how can you act as God uh, and yet act as a human being uh, at the same time? Do you know what you're doing? Uh, do you know, you know, was, did Jesus, was Jesus aware uh, when, uh, for example, he was talking to the woman at the well? Uh, was this God speaking or man speaking? Uh, when he was walking on water, uh, you know, was this God walking on water? Was this a man walking on water? Uh, what did Jesus think? Uh, you know, how did he conceive of himself when he spoke? Uh, and so on. What about uh, things you see that Jesus didn't know, uh, like the, the time of his return? You see, when he tells his disciples, I don't know uh, when I'm coming back again. Uh, only the Father knows that. How could he say that if he was God? Uh, surely God knows everything. Uh, and how is it possible for Jesus not to know? Uh, this particular thing. And so you see, once we get into some of the, uh, the questions like this, you begin to see uh, that uh, a question which seems fairly simple at the, uh, on the surface is actually very difficult and very complicated. Now, I want to just take you back a little bit, uh, if we can go right back to New Testament times, because there's something about uh, those days uh, that is very different from today, but we don't notice. I mean, we do notice some things are very different. Uh, you know, like, for instance, uh, back then people sort of had to walk around and ride on horses instead of driving. Um, in, uh, back in Roman times uh, in London, for example, the, apparently the average speed was something like 11 miles an hour, and now it's about five. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, things have changed um, in, in, in many ways like that. Um, but one thing that has changed that we don't realize is the way in which we use the terms God and man or person. Um, you know, some people make an industry of changing the word man to person. And I do forgive me, please, if you're one of them. Um, you're not. All oh, right. All right. Okay. Right. <laughs> there you are. Uh, <laughs> if you are, you're welcome to leave. Um, <laughs> so I gather. Uh, it does get difficult sometimes. Um, but... Uh, I don't want to get too confused there. But simply to go back into ancient times and say that if we today say the word God uh, or say the word man or human being, we instinctively, automatically think of a person. You see, uh, if you say, well, you know, God, uh, you ask the question, who is God? Uh, you know, and you would describe God in a personal way. Uh, I mean, however you did it, I mean, whether you talk of him as father or, or, or whatever, I mean, the, 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 the language you use, the way you picture God is of a person, uh, in one kind or another. But now, in ancient times, not many people thought like that. 
And they didn't think like that because the concept of being a person, as we understand it today, didn't really exist. Now you say to yourself, well, they must have known. I mean, surely they saw people wandering around uh, and they must have known that they were persons. Uh, And, uh, of course, in a sense they did. I mean, obviously they did. Uh, But the perception of this is different. If you look through the Bible, for example, you'll find that the word person never occurs. It's not there anywhere. Uh, You know, uh, when uh, you talk about this in, in the scriptures, you find people talking about the heart or the soul or the mind, some aspect you see, of the human being. But the concept that the term person, the the word person, is not actually used uh, anywhere in the scriptures, either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. And the reason for this is that the word person was an invention, if you like, of Christian theology, of the Christian church, because they needed it in order to describe how it was possible to be God and man at the same time. It came out of that discussion, out of that debate as to how you could put these two things together. However, I'm getting ahead of myself here. We have to go back into the way of thinking in the early church. So when you say Jesus was fully God and fully man, most people would have understood this, would have heard this in terms not of person, but of thing, of what you might call a substance, or as we, our lectures call it tonight, a nature. You see, this is the way they're thinking. You're thinking, well, what is God and what is a human being? Not who, but what. And if you ask that question, of course, you're thinking about something really different from talking about who. Because when you ask the question, what, then the question of how you can be God and be man at the same time becomes a real problem. Because if you say, well, what is God? If I ask you that question, see, not who is God, but what is God? You will say to me, well, um, God is a spirit. All right. Well, what is a human being? Uh, well, a human being is a blob of flesh. You know, some bigger than others, but, uh, you know, uh, there we are. You see, I mean, a human, in other words, God is invisible and you and I are visible. Uh, and, you see, so that's completely different. And then you say, well, God, uh, God lives forever. You see, God is eternal. He does, he's not born, he doesn't die, he's just there. Uh, whereas we, di- we, we are born, we grow old, and we die. So we pass away. We are temporal, in other words. You see, we live in time. Very different from God. Uh, and then, you see, you can go on like this, and you can say, well, where is God? Uh, and they say, well, God is everywhere. Uh, you can't sort of pin him down. You can't say, well, this is God here and not there, because God is just everywhere all the time. But you and I, of course, as human beings, are limited in space. You see, we are not everywhere. We are in one particular place at one particular time, and we have to be there. We can't be anywhere else. 
So, of course, one of the big questions when you ask about Jesus, how can Jesus be God and man? How can he be everywhere and yet just here at the same time? You see, what are you talking about? You see, when you ask the question, what? What is God? What is man? And you make a list and you say, well, all the characteristics, all the words that you use about God and then you ask about human beings, you find that nine times out of ten, what you are going to say about human beings is the exact opposite. You see? Visible, invisible, immortal, mortal, the other way around, mortal, immortal, uh, you know, uh, finite, that is to say, limited in space, infinite. Uh, And you, you can make a long list of this, Uh, You see, you can say that God is almighty, he's all-powerful, and we are not. You see, we are weak, we are are limited in our power, uh, and so on. Uh, Anything like that that you care to name, uh, you'll find that God is on one side, and you and I are on the other. Because what we are is completely different. You see, and so this is the question. This is the basic issue. How can this be? How can you reconcile two opposites? I mean, how can you be invisible and visible at the same time? You see, what are you talking about here? Now, this question didn't really occur to the Jews before the coming of Christ Because, of course, they did not believe that God could become anything visible. You see, they didn't believe that you could see God or touch God or feel God or anything like this. And why not? Because in the Old Testament, God is the creator, the creator of everything that is, And by definition, the universe, and that includes you and me, the creation, is something else. You see, God made the creation, the created order that we live in, out of nothing. This is a very important Christian belief. You see, and you say, well, why does it matter that God should made, have made the world out of nothing? I say, well, what are the alternatives? What, what choice is there? Uh, if you don't believe that, you can believe one or two other things. You can say, well, God made the creation out of himself. That is to say, he took something out of himself, uh, you see, and extended it, you know, sort of spat out the creation or something like this. It's kind of something that comes from out from inside. But, of course, the, the problem with that is that if God did that, if God sort of had, cre- had made the world out of himself, then the world would be like him. It would share the same nature, and this is clearly not true. You see, it would be an extension of him rather than something totally different. So that doesn't work. And the other option is that God made the world uh, out of something which existed independently of him. You see, in other words, that there was matter out there, uh, you know, a visible uh, matter, uh, which was not made by God, uh, but God sort of came along, found it, 
uh, and got to work on it, you see, like this, and made the world out of something which was essentially different from him to begin with, independent of him. Now, the trouble with that, of course, is uh, that if the world, if the, the material world is independent of God from the beginning, then, of course, you have to ask the question, how does it get under God's control? What makes it possible for God to control something that he did not make? You see, why shouldn't it be the other way round? Why didn't matter come along and see God uh, and say, well, you know, we're going to take over God rather than the other way around? And, you know, some people thought that. They thought that the meeting of God and material reality and matter was not necessarily something which God controlled, but it might be something where God was trapped, in a sense, in his relationship with this material substance because this material thing was another power, a power independent of him, equal to him, therefore, you see, separate from him, and that there was a kind of warfare going on uh, between God on the one hand and this other thing on the other hand, uh, and it wasn't clear that God was going to win. You see, because uh, you, could, you can't know that from adva- in advance. So there were a lot of people who thought that. In the, it sounds odd to us today. Uh, you think that anyone could imagine this, but people did think this in ancient times. A lot of people thought that. Uh, and this is how they explained evil. Because they said God is good, and this thing which is against him is therefore not good, and if you're not good, you must be bad. And therefore, the material world, you see, the, 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 the physical world that we see, is by nature evil. It's bad, it's wrong, because it's not God. You see, if God is good, everything that isn't God is bad, is, way, is the way they argued. Now, of course, Jews did not think this. Partly because it says in Genesis that it's not true. Uh, You know, when God made the world, God created everything. And you notice at the end of each day, you know, it says the evening and the morning was one day. The evening and the morning was the second day. And God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. So if you believe this, you see, you are going against the idea that there can be in the material world, the world around, around us, evil. That evil is somehow inherent in things that you can touch and, and see and handle and so on. Whatever evil is, it's not that. Now, this is a very difficult idea to get across, particularly when you think in terms of things and of God being completely different from everything that he has made. Because how is it possible, you say, to be good without being perfect? Because when, you see, God made the world, you know, when he made apples and oranges uh, and caterpillars and things like this, uh, you know, they were all, it was all very good, but clearly not all-powerful. 
uh, and clearly not invisible. I mean, didn't share any of the other characteristics of God. So how can you say this is good? You see, so a lot of people found this very hard to believe. And for a lot of people in the early uh, Christian times, you see, they had great difficulty believing that God could enter into the world, that God could become a human being, because they thought that if God got into contact with matter, with flesh and blood, that he would be corrupted by this. You see, that flesh and blood is somehow evil, somehow bad. And of course, the issue is complicated. It's made more complicated by the fact that there is a certain truth in this. You see, all the best heresies have some truth in them. It's very important to realize. Uh, you see, that when you, if you want to make a really good heresy... Uh, and you pretty well have to if you want to become a bishop. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, you sort of make a really good heresy is to think of something that's true, you see, and then twist it. Don't invent something that's totally wrong because no one will believe you, you know. Find something that's, that's plausible, that sounds good, and that's, that is true up to a point, you see, and then run with it, go too far, you see, and you'll drag an awful lot of people with you, uh, and so on. It's amazing how you can do this. Anyhow, now that we've um, sort of, I would probably just closed the institute, have we? Um, <laughs> everybody will be running off with their own little heresy, but, uh, but you know, to sort of see how this, how this works. Because, of course, it's true that every single one of us, every single human being, is, in a sense, bad. We are, in a sense, evil. That, after all, is why Jesus came into the world. You know, if we were good, and just sitting there like daffodils, you know, looking pretty, uh, and so on, and there was no problem, he would not have become a man. He would not have come into the world. There would have been no point in his doing this. So the fact that you and I are somehow bad is important for the coming of Jesus into the world. You see, it's bound up with that. But, you see, Jesus came into the world, the Son of God became a man, not in order to be bad the way we are bad, but in order to deliver us, to liberate us, to set us free from this badness in you and me. Now, how do you do that? You see, what does it mean? Well, of course, you've got to stop and think then for a minute. If this is true, can the Son of God be a man, a physical human being, without being bad? You know, like you and me. Could it, could, is this possible? Why did nobody notice if this was the case? 
Because you see, Jesus spent 30 years of his life in Nazareth. He grew up there. Nazareth was a very small place. And those of you who come from very small places know what they're like. You don't get away with a lot. You know, if you're born and brought up in a small place, everybody knows you. They know all about you. They know more about you than there is to know a lot of the time. You know. And so you would think that if Jesus was somehow a freak, you know, that he was, he was, he was too good, not, not bad like everybody else, somebody would have noticed. And yet they didn't, and we know that they didn't, because when Jesus started preaching, he went back to Nazareth, and he was thrown out of the place. Why? For the obvious reason, he was getting above himself. You know, who does this carpenter's son think he is to come back here and preach to us? Which, of course, you can see why they're saying this. He's just one of us. You see, they didn't notice that there was anything different about him. So if we believe that Jesus came into the world, that he grew up and was a man like other people and so on, and that he was not bad the way we are, somehow or other, we have to rethink what evil is. Uh, you see, what badness is uh, in terms of being human. And this may be the point where we have to start today. Because the first thing we have to say is that being a human being is not in itself a bad thing. Or, if I can put it differently, human nature is not evil in and of itself. God did not create Adam and Eve in that way. You see, when God created Adam and Eve, they were good. And the evil, the bad which has entered into the human race and which has spread to all of us, is not natural, but unnatural. It's abnormal. Now here again we have to get our minds around this, because unfortunately, today people don't talk like this. You see, we talk about nature, human nature, and natural and so on, in a way which is actually wrong. Because when we talk about human nature, we assume that human nature ha is somehow evil or bad or in rebellion against God or something like this. See, we've grown used to talking like this. But this is not what the Bible actually says. Because when the Bible talks about human nature, it's not talking about fallen human nature, or, you know, Adam and Eve after, the, uh, after they were expelled from the Garden of Eden. It's talking about the way we were made by God. And the way we were made by God is not evil. You see? Now, it's very, very important that you understand this, because if this were not true, 
You see, if I am evil because of what I am, as flesh and blood, that makes me bad. Uh, If that were true, then the Son of God could not have become a man. He could not have become a man because that would have involved becoming evil. And of course, he couldn't become evil. In fact, it's so untrue that the Son of God could become a man and could be a man and could be a perfect person without anybody really noticing. You see, or sensing that this was some kind of oddity walking around. That's what I mean. I mean, he fitted in to his family, to his village, to his people. They, they didn't sense that there was some kind of freak walking around here. You see? So, to be a perfect person did not mean being abnormal or unnatural. And of course, the other thing we have to bear in mind here, the other aspect of this, and this is where it's very important to us, is that the Bible teaches us, the New Testament teaches us, that when we die and go to heaven, it's not just the spiritual part of us that goes to heaven, but the body will also be resurrected. You see, that there is such a thing as the resurrection of the flesh, to quote the, uh, the, the New Testament more accurately. It talks about the resurrection of the flesh. And of course, we see this in Jesus, that Jesus, when he died, he came back from the dead, he brought his body, his physical body, back with him, and he ascended with that body into heaven. But more remarkably, I think... Uh, is that you and I will also come back with a resurrection body. See, it's not just him, because you could say, well, he was good, he was perfect, so that's natural for him. But you and I also, because that's part of what it means to be redeemed, to have had our sins paid for, that one of the rewards of this is that we shall uh, live in eternity with a body. You see that our body will somehow be transformed uh, and uh, made new and so on, and we will live with God in eternity. Now, some people, of course, immediately ask, uh, well, what will I look like when I come back? And the only answer I ever give to this is, not the way you look now, (laughs) for which we can all be... Very grateful. Um, and I say this not just you know, because I'm a cynic, and that's one reason, but that's not the only reason. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you read there, uh, around you know, the verses, say, start around verse 40 and go on to the end of the chapter, you see the Apostle Paul explains it very clearly because what he says is that when you die, your, your body is like a seed, uh, and the seed must be buried... And when the seed comes back, you see there's a resurrection. It comes back as the plant. But you can't tell from looking at the seed what the plant is going to look like. 
You see, they're two different, they're two different things to look at. But of course, they're connected. Because if you throw the seed out, you'll never get the plant. You see what I mean? It's not as if there's no relationship between them. They're intimately connected. But to look at them, they're very different. All right? Now, the point of this, I'm, I'm going to the natures of Christ, the two natures of Christ. Human nature, when we look at, we, we discuss this whole question of what is human nature, you cannot say that human nature is morally corrupt or human nature is morally evil in and of itself. The moral corruption, the sin, the evil which exists in us now is the result of an abnormality. It's because something has gone wrong, not because it was intended to be like that from the beginning. All right? So this is a very, very important point to make because if you don't get that very clear, I'm stressing this a lot because I want you to understand that if human nature is not basically good by creation, then the Son of God could not have become a man. All right? That's my only point. I am not saying that human nature, as we, you and I have it now, as we understand it, has not gone wrong. Of course it has gone wrong uh, in a different way, but th- this is another issue, all right, which we'll look at in a minute. But uh, just for now, to get this one idea clearly in our minds. When the Son of God became a man, when the Word became flesh, what exactly happened? This is the next question. You see, how did this transformation, this change, or whatever it is, take place? And this again is a very important question to ask. Because you have to say to yourself, well, when the Son of God came into the world, did he change in some way? Did he adapt himself to his new environment? In other words, uh, did he say to himself, well, I'm going to go and live on earth, so I'll have to give up being invisible, I'll have to give up being all-powerful, I'll have to give up being eternal. You know, we just have to lay these things aside for the time being because it doesn't fit the role that I'm going to take on. You know, uh, I mean, it's very all very well, but it just won't work uh, if I become a man like this. So we leave it to one side, and I'll go into the womb of Mary uh, and just be an ordinary man uh, like anybody else, you see, and uh, not have these divine powers while I'm down there on the earth. Now, this is a view uh, which some people hold. You see, they say... Uh, that this is true, and they base it on Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7, uh, where it says uh, that the Son of God, who, or, or the, Jesus Christ, who thought it not robbery, it says, to be counted equal with God, nevertheless humbled himself or emptied himself, taking the form of a man. And this phrase, humbled himself or emptied himself, has been taken over... <laughs> 
Uh, and people say, well, that's what happened. You see, he gave up aspects of his divinity. He stopped being God for a little while so that he could become a man like you and me. Now, this sounds good. You see, humility always sounds good. There are very few people who genuinely are humble, but, you know, it's a good idea, isn't it? However, you see, if you think about this a little bit longer, uh, you begin to realize that it won't work. And it won't work because of what it says here in John's Gospel, in John chapter 1. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. But if the Son of God had given up his glory in order to become a man, you wouldn't have seen it. You see, this would not have been possible. In fact, nothing Jesus did on earth would be a work of God because he'd given that up. You see, he left that aside. So all the things that he did on earth, most especially dying for your sin and for my sin, paying the price of sin, this would not have been, whatever he did, it wasn't that, because he's not God. You see what I mean? Well, he was God, but he gave that up for the time being. And until he goes back into heaven and starts being God again, uh, you know, he's kind of having time out from being God. But you see, that doesn't work because God doesn't live in time. So how can God have time out from anything? You see, if God is, is God, he's eternal, he's always God. Uh, and if he happens to be on earth at the moment, well, then he's still God when he's on earth. You see, that doesn't work. So what I'm saying is these people who have this idea... It sounds good, it's meant to sound good, but it doesn't actually work in practice. All right? So that's one thing that, that we have to rule out. Now the other thing, the other uh, choice is to say, well, of course, God, divinity, you see, being God, is clearly a much bigger and better thing than being a human being. So if God comes into the world, if the Son of God becomes a man, he comes into the world, then it's quite clear that what he's doing is he's taking humanity, he's taking uh, human flesh, you see, out of the womb of Mary and turning it into something else. Uh, That, in fact... He's not a real human being like you and me. But he's something better. You know, he's a kind of new, improved version, if you like. You see, uh, of, of, being a human, of being human. Well, if you read the New Testament, there are things in the New Testament that might suggest this is true. For example, uh, Jesus walks on water. You and I don't. Not normally, anyhow. Um, You see, so you say to yourself, well, that's an example. You see, Jesus obviously had a body 
which was different from your body and my body, because otherwise, how would Jesus have walked on water? You see? Uh, so that's proof that he wasn't a normal human being. He was a, an improved version. But the problem with that, and the reason that's not the right answer, is because if you read that story, you find that Jesus is there walking on water, and Peter, you see, Peter is always the one who's, you know, the, the pest, isn't he? Always the head of the class, trying to do better than the teacher. Anyway, um, you know, Peter says, uh, what about me? And Jesus said, well, yes, fine. I mean, you know, get out of the boat and walk. you too can walk on water. You see, uh, all you need is faith. And of course, Peter being too stupid to know the difference, gets out of the boat and starts walking. And of course, he sinks. because. And Jesus says, you don't really have faith. Now, the point of this is, Jesus did not say to Peter, well, you can't do this because you're not as good as I am. You see, you can't do this because I'm a better kind of being than you are. The difference was that Jesus believed, Jesus knew he had this relationship with his father which allowed him to do this, and Peter didn't have that. And that was the issue. You see, that's what made the difference. Now this is very important to see that we realize this, because Jesus was not saying, oh, I'm different from you, you see, in terms of his body, he had the same kind of body as, as Peter had, and Peter could have done this as well, according to Jesus, had his faith been strong enough, had his relationship with God been right, been the same kind of relationship that Jesus had with his father. So you see, this is very important that we understand. The other thing, of course, is that if Jesus was not a real human being, how could he have taken your place and my place on the cross? Because he did. You see, he died the death and paid the price that you would have to die and that I would have to die. Well, if he were some kind of superior being, not a real human being, how could this be me? See, how could this be my death? It wouldn't be my death. You see, uh, it would be somebody else's death, something else's death. Whatever Jesus went through, what I go through is different. And it's very important that we shouldn't fall into this trap. Because the last thing we want to say, people to say is, oh, well, it's all right for him. You know, he was God. You know, he could suffer and die and not feel it. You know, it's different for me. You know, how can Jesus really relate to me? How can I relate to him? Because he's on a different level, you see, from you and me. And this is not what the New Testament teaches. You see, what we teach as Christians is that he was in every point tempted just as we are, yet without sin, that he bore our griefs, he bore our sorrows, he bore our sins, he went through everything that you and I will ever have to go through, 
and that there is no form of human suffering, no form of human pain, no form of uh, human uh, victimhood or alienation or anything like that, that Jesus does not share. You see, that Jesus is, is incapable of entering into. He even went down into hell, you see, to go to the, 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 the bottom, if you like, right to the very depth uh, of, this, of this terrible reality. So, uh, you see, Jesus is not to be regarded as some kind of, of, of superman, to some kind of higher being like this. And if you think this, and if you, if you fall into that trap, then you are distancing him from us and taking away his role as your savior. You see, you may be doing it out of kindness and politeness uh, and so on, but still you are removing, in a, in a subtle way, something which is essential not just to him, but to you and me. You see, we have got to have, we need a son of God who is also a real human being so that I can say that on the cross, the son of God took my place. He died my death because he was like me and I am like him in this respect. So it's very, very important. So we cannot accept the idea that uh, you know, God came into the world, seized uh, a bit of human flesh out of Mary and turned it into something else, nor can we accept the idea that he said goodbye to his Godhead uh, you know, for 30 years or so on and just became a man. Those two things don't work. All right? Okay, they don't work. So what actually happened? See, how do we understand this? Well, of course, in the New Testament it says that Mary conceived in her womb the, the baby Jesus, you see, the child Jesus, and she conceived as a virgin. In other words, there was no intervention of a male in the conception of, uh, of Jesus. Now, this, of course, is a miracle. Uh, it can only happen uh, in a miraculous way. Uh, and, uh, of course, the question then arises, well, uh, is it genuine? You see, uh, is this possible? I mean, what is going on, uh, if you like, in the womb of Mary? Now, for a long time, uh, people argued this. You see, the, the, the big issue they, they faced was this question of sin, because they said, well, if Jesus came out of the womb, and the baby Jesus came out of the womb, uh, and his mother was a sinner, I mean, she, she was a human being like every other human being, uh, didn't Jesus get sin from his mother? You know, didn't she pass it on uh, in, the, in the birth process? And it's very important that you understand this because this shows you how people thought about nature. You see, about human nature and divine nature as a thing and sin as a kind of congenital defect. You see, that you pass on from one generation to the next. This is how they thought. And of course they had to say, well, that didn't happen. That couldn't have happened. So how did Jesus avoid this? See, how could he be born 
in, 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 into the world as a human being and yet not have this sin in him? And the answer that they came up with was, Mary was purified, Mary was cleansed before she conceived Jesus so that she didn't pass sin on to her son because she didn't have it in herself. And of course, as time went on, this was developed more and more uh, to the point where people began to say that Mary's mother was cleansed from her sin so that Mary was born without sin and Mary never had any sin. And today, that is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, And you may have heard of something called the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and people don't always understand what this means. It doesn't mean the conception of Jesus. It means the conception of Mary, when Mary was born. You see that she was born without sin, uh, not just Jesus. And they came up with this idea, of course it's a crazy idea, but they came up with this idea because, you see, they, they said to themselves, well, what kind of man is it that can come out of the womb of a virgin? You see, what's going on here? And uh, how can he uh, uh, come out and not uh, inherit uh, everything that his mother possessed? You see, I mean, what, what is happening in, in this respect? And so this is the problem, of course, that you face uh, if you think in terms of nature, if you think in terms of, of a thing being born in the womb of Mary, how can that thing, which is being formed there, be different uh, from the mother who forms it? I mean, surely they, they lived together for nine months. Uh, how could they have not shared the same being, the same nature during that time? It doesn't make sense. See? And of course, people were quite right uh, to, to say this, right? quite right to think in this way. So we're dealing here, you see, with a very complex, uh, complex question. Now the answer, of course, the answer that we, we have to come to is to say that the questions being asked, the way in which the discussion was taking place, was wrong from the beginning. It was because people thought in terms of things rather than in terms of persons, in terms of people, uh, that they, had, they, they, they fell into all these traps. You see, uh, they, they, they ended up coming to this kind of conclusion because they started with the wrong idea to begin with. Now, this wasn't their fault, you see, it's all very well to say, well, how, didn't they, how come they didn't know any better? Well, they didn't know any better because nobody had told them anything different. You see, they didn't have a way of uh, being able to express anything different. And this is what the, the, the Christian church had to battle with. This is what they had to try to work out. How can we find a way of combining the God and the man in a single Jesus Christ in a way that makes sense. 
you see, in a way that will hang together and in a way that will avoid this kind of problem. You see? And of course, ultimately, they can't, we haven't got time to go into all this tonight, but ultimately they came up with the, with the understanding that the only way to do this was to, was to think in a different set of categories. Change your way of thinking. And then if you change your way of thinking, you may find that problems which you had before go away. Or at least they appear in a very different light. Now what was it that allowed the church to change its way of thinking? What was it that forced the church to change its way of thinking? It was the question of how Jesus, the Son of God, relates to the Father. How do they work together within God? In other words, how can there be two of them, and indeed three if you add the Holy Spirit, when there's only one God? See, how does that work? And of course the answer to this uh, was uh, that in God, although there is only one God, and one divine nature, and one substance, and so on, one thing. When you talk about God as a thing, there's only one. God is actually three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons who relate to each other. And what is more, the early church said, the early Christians said, this has to be the case. It has to be the case because if God is not a community of persons in his being, God cannot be love. And yet we believe that God is love. And you say, well, what does it mean to be love? See, love is not a thing. You can't sort of go out to the shop and come back with, you know a pint of love, or something like this. It's not a thing. Love is actually a form of relationship. It is a description of relationship. It cannot exist without a relationship. And so therefore, of course, if God is going to be love, God must have relationships inside himself. And this is the basic belief, you see, the basic thing that this is the Father who loves the Son and the Son loves the Father back again and they both love the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit both loves them both. This is this community of love into which you and I have been invited. That we have been given the privilege of sharing in the love of God. Because one of these persons came to earth in order to make it possible for us to know what the love of God is. In order to have an, a demonstration of this, in our midst. And this is what Jesus 
came to do. Jesus didn't really come to do miracles. You know, I mean, he did miracles, but this was not his main purpose. His main purpose was to show God's love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the central fact, the central truth of the gospel. The love of God being shown in your life and in my life. You see, and this is what is going on, if you like, uh, when this happens. Now, how is this possible? You see, how can this be? Uh, and the answer ha- has to be, if you work this out, the persons of God, the person of the Son of God, the man we call Jesus Christ, has to be in control of his nature, his divine nature. Because if the person of the Son of God is not in control of his divine nature, he can't do anything. He can't become a man. If his nature controls him, then he is limited by it. And if his nature says, well, you have to be eternal, uh, invisible, etc., then he cannot become visible and temporal and all these other things because his nature will not allow it. Only if the person is able to control his nature, to, to dominate his nature, to be over his nature, is he free to step out of it. Or, in this case, not so much step out of it, but add to it. And this is what we believe happened when the Son of God entered the womb of the Virgin Mary. He didn't stop being God, but he started being a man as well. You see? And he could do this because as a person, as a person of the Godhead, he could actually step outside himself and take on a second nature. Now you think, my goodness, how does he do that? How is this possible? Well, of course, there are several factors that have to be borne in mind here. I said at the beginning that your nature and my nature are not evil by creation. God did not create us that way. The evil which came in, came in later. It was an abnormality. It was something wrong that went wrong, not something that was made like that. But Genesis, the first chapter of Genesis, also says that when you and I were made, when you and I were created... We were created in the image and likeness of God. In other words, God put something in you and me which makes us somehow like him to begin with. Now, people have argued over the centuries, what is the image of God in man? You know, how do you define this? 
where do you find it? And they've come up with all sorts of different answers. But the real answer to this question, seems to me, is that the image and likeness of God in you and me is this capacity for relationship. You see, the fact that we are created with this ability which other beings do not have. You see, uh, I mean, dogs, for example, uh, you might say are individuals. Uh, They have names and so on. But dogs are not people. You have to keep reminding people of this, especially especially in England, if you ever noticed where dogs are far more important than people in many cases. But anyhow, um, you see, they're not people. And I always say, to one of my favorite illustrations here, people, in case you don't believe this, you know, um, and you may not, because uh, I saw a program on the television the other night about some veterinary hospital. Did you see that? Anyone see that? Where the people are sort of taking their dogs to hospital and so on, and sort of ooing and aahing all over them and spending millions of pounds, you know, to get this little pooch back in order. And I thought, oh, heavens above. But anyhow, um, the thing is, uh, if, you, if I gave you a choice to be bitten on the leg, either by a dog or by me, (laughs) which of these would you choose? Now, you see, you laugh at this. You think this is a funny question. Don't be too quick about this. The thing is, If you're sensible about this, if you're thinking in terms of pain and suffering, then you're far better off being bitten by me than you are by the average dog. It's not going to be nearly as painful. You see, because I'm not physically capable of doing the same degree of damage to you that a dog would do. But of course, the minute I say that, you realize this is a crazy thing to suggest. But why? You see, what's the difference between me and a dog? And the difference is that I am a person. You see, that I have a relationship with God because I'm created in the image and likeness of God. And therefore, to put it simply, I ought to know better. I mean, the dog is only doing what dogs do. You know, you can't blame the dog. Uh, But if I did such a thing, I could be blamed for it. In other words, I can be a sinner. You see, I can be held accountable. I can be guilty of something in a way that a dog cannot. So even though I can have the same name as a dog, and I did have a student once who named his dog after me because he... It could push it around more easily. It's fine. But anyway, um, you know, I mean, this is possible. Uh, And dogs are individuals. And I know some of you would far rather have a dog than have me in your house, that's for sure. Um, Nevertheless, you see, uh, we're not on the same level. And 
we have to think this one through. It's very simple in one way. I put it in a very simple way. But it's also very, very important. Because you see, you and I, in our human nature, are created in the image and likeness of God, and therefore there is something in us which reflects the divine. And so, of course, when the Son of God became a man, he was, as John says, coming to his own. He was coming into a race of beings, the human race, which in some respect was like him already. You see, he wasn't actually coming into something alien, something totally different. He was coming into something which was already, in some way or other, connected. And of course, he was coming to put that connection right. That was the whole point. The connection had gone wrong... You see, that link had gone wrong, that relationship had gone wrong, and he, had come, he was coming to make what had gone wrong right again. That's what it's all about. And so, it's not as if, you see, God became something totally different from himself. He became someone, you see, he entered into the human race in order to restore a relationship which was there from the beginning. See, which is there but which has gone wrong. And this is again very, very important that we understand because there is no human being who does not have a relationship with God. Now some of you may be surprised to hear that, but you're surprised to hear this because, yet again, people today talk in a loose kind of way about this. You see, they say to, well, you don't have a relationship with God, you need to meet Jesus, then you can have a relationship with God. But the Bible doesn't say this. The Bible says you have the wrong relationship with God. In other words, you are a sinner and you are responsible for this. In other words, you are guilty. We don't like to use this language, but that's what it is. And it needs to be put right. And Jesus has come to do this. He's not come to give you a relationship which you haven't ever had. He's come to put right a relationship which is yours, by, which should be yours, which is what God intends you to have, but which has gone wrong. You see? And for which you are held responsible, because after all, it's not what God hasn't put it, made it go wrong. You have. And I have. And so the correction, the change has to come in us. And this is what uh, is happening, you see, when the Son of God becomes a man. He enters into the human race. Now he is in charge. And when he becomes, a, when he takes on human flesh, the Son of God can decide, he has the power to use whatever nature he wishes to use uh, at any given time. You see, if he wants to use his divine power, he can do that. He's free to do that. If he doesn't, he's free to do that too. He's not restricted in this way. Now you say, well, how can this be? How can this happen? I think the best example of this, the best analogy, all analogies fail at some point, but the, the one I want to share with you may help you to understand this. 
Think of somebody who's got two nationalities. You know, let's say who has an English father and a French mother. All right? But you only see this person in one context. In other words, to you, this, this child is English because that's how you see him growing up and living and you know, everything else, no problem. But then one day, let's say the, you know, the phone goes off, usually when they should be doing something else, um, you know, and suddenly it's mother on the phone and mother starts babbling away in French and this little child responds, you see, in that language. And you are surprised because you didn't know that the child could do that. And you wonder how this is possible. How can they think in two languages at the same time? You see. And yet you know, of course, that this child is not peculiar. I mean, they're normal in every respect, but they just seem to have this added dimension to them, which you and I don't have. You see, you can't do that. But they can because they have this, this side. And I wonder, you see, just throw this out as a question, is this how the disciples saw Jesus? That most of the time, you see, Jesus was wandering around, he was one of them. He talked their language, he lived their life, and so on. But every once in a while, his father would call him, you know, or he would have to deal with his father, and of course that was a different thing. And it's when he's dealing with his father, you see, when he's relating to his father, that you see the other side. Uh, that his, his divine side comes out. And it's not something which is contradictory, it's not something which is, uh, you know, abnormal or anything like that. But it's something that you and I can't do. You see, it's not, because we're not like him uh, in this respect. Now, think about that. You see, think about that as a way of trying to understand what Jesus would have been like if you'd met him in the flesh, on earth, if you'd been around at that time and you'd actually met him. What sort of impression would he have left? How would it have looked to you? And I wonder whether that might have been the impression you would have come away with. You see, that here was somebody who related to you, who was perfectly normal and uh, you know, did everything the way you did and I did and so on. But there was this added dimension, there was this other thing, uh, which is explained by his parentage, by his, you know, the, the, where he comes from, uh, and which is something that you, you can learn about and you can come to understand, but it doesn't come naturally. You see, it's not something that you say, oh yeah, of course, that's obvious. We're all like that. Because we're not. You see, only he is like that. And this is some way in which he stands out and is different. Different without being peculiar. You see, or freakish, that it is possible to do this. There's more to being human than appears on the surface. Have I, I've gone way over time, haven't I? Um, anyhow, I was asked to talk for an hour, and if, would that be all right? Um, now, there are many, many other issues here which we could look into. I have only scratched the surface. 
What I've tried to do this evening is to give you a way of thinking about these questions so that you, when, you, when you have a question that comes up, you see, when you ask something, you think of these categories and you say, well, where does it fit? And if you want to just to take one or two examples uh, of this, how do I know what belongs to me as a person and what belongs to my nature, you see, as a, as a, as a, as a body? What's the difference? Well, think of it like this. When I die and I come back again in the resurrection, I'm going to have a completely different body. I'll be totally different from what I am now. But I'm still going to be the same person. If I'm not the same person, then it's not me, and then I'm not saved. I'm somebody else. That can't be right. You see? So I'm, I, there's something about me which is going to survive death. What is it? It's not in my body. You know, because my body's going to go under or into the flames or something. But there's some, that's something else, you see, which is going to survive and which is going to acquire a new body, a new nature. Ask yourself, if you ask the question, what about, say, your mind? Does your mind belong to your person or your nature, your, your, your physical being? Well, the question you need to ask there is, can you lose it without ceasing to be a, a person? Well, of course, we all know plenty of people like that, don't we? Um, and so the answer to that is obvious. Is that, of course you can lose your mind and yet still be a person. What about your will? Yes, you can lose your will. You see, you can be hypnotized. You can be brainwashed. You can lose your will. You can become a vegetable on a life support machine, uh, but you're still a person. You see, and here is a big issue today, because there are people today who will go around saying, if you are a, a, you know, on a life support machine, then you are no longer a person, in the full sense of the word, because they identify being a person with having a, a, a normal quality of life. And so it's perfectly all right to pull the plug, especially if there's a legacy, you know, then the sooner you pull the plug, the better. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit wicked here, but, you know, people do think like this. You have to be very careful uh, in this way. And I'm not saying, of course, that you should prolong you know, vegetal existence unnaturally. I'm not saying that. I think people should, you know, this, this should be allowed to die with dignity and so on. Yes, of course. But this is not really the issue here. The issue is, are you any less of a person because you have been deprived of something? You see? And the answer to that has to be no. You see, I can lose my mind... I can lose my will. Uh, I can lose lots of things. I can lose a leg. 
uh, and all kinds of things like that, but I don't lose my salvation because I am saved as a person in my relationship with God and whatever else goes and disappears, that will continue. You see, and this is the key thing, this is what we believe. That's what makes the difference. You see, and that's why uh, if I bite your leg, you aren't going to just put me down, which you would do if I were a dog. You know, you try to do something about it. Because you would recognize that I'd lost my mind. <laughs> but I was still a person. You see, created in the image and likeness of God, and therefore had to be dealt with in that way, because that's how God deals with you and me. And that's what the two natures of Christ ultimately is all about. All right? I'm going to stop there. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thanks. You've achieved what I've longed for for many, many years, almost shortened the time to nothing for questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that was also part of the game, yeah. I know. <laughs> I want to tell you, I was bitten by a dog in the leg mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. Oh, really? You're doing and, very well. I know. I'm not going to put you to the test here. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> Can we just have a pause for a minute or two and maybe one or two questions framing in people's minds? And we've got a few minutes for questions as well. So, can you just be thinking about that? Don't leave, please. Questions. John, you have to be on the board here. Frank Nags in the corner there. Thank you, Gerald. I'm practicing a heresy in the Anglican Church. Right. I bounced it off uh, Richard Bewes uh, and uh, a few others, and even that great theologian, George Curry. Oh. Um, it's to do with the, uh, if I um, point you to John chapter 19 when um, uh, he was crucified it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up the spirit Mm -hmm. now that was one transaction but what uh, I'm interested in on the evening of the day of the resurrection the first day of the week the doors being locked and the disciples were for uh, for fear of the Jews uh, Jesus came and stood among them and said peace be with you shalom when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Now, I just wonder why he had to say it twice. And one of my conjectures is that, he, that someone else had arrived in the room. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold, uh, withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Was he actually speaking to the Holy Spirit in uh, that transaction? Because that dismantles the whole uh, clerical ethos of um, you know, the Roman Church. Which is what you want to do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, they're in one. Right. <laughs> no. Chris Green as well. The, the oh, yeah, right, okay, no. Well, I think, I think the answer there has to be no, not quite uh, in, the, in, in that respect. Um, 
when you know receive the Holy Spirit and then what you, you, you forgive will be forgiven and so on. I would say that that means that you receive the Holy Spirit and then in the power of the Holy Spirit, as you, uh, as you hear the Holy Spirit, you know, and as, as, you, as you serve the Holy Spirit, as you minister uh, in the Holy Spirit, then of course you will be given the discernment, you will be given the judgment uh, to be able to say these things. Uh, and I think the difference here is, again, it's not the power. And I think, again, perhaps it's, the, it's this problem of the, of the difference between person and nature again. You see that to receive the Holy Spirit is to enter into a, a relationship with God, uh, a relationship of, of, of discernment based on love, uh, and so on, and not to be given a special power. Uh, you know, and uh, as such that I can say, I mean, it's not like receiving a diploma, uh, you know, or a badge from the police force or something like that, that I can then go out and say, all right, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. Uh, I don't think that, that that's what's intended at all. I think the thing is that you are to understand, you are to see in the, whole, in the power of the Spirit, and then you will discern what the will of the Spirit is. Um, uh, you know, that's the, that's the aim, anyhow. That's what I would interpret this to mean. I don't think that Jesus is talking to the Holy Spirit directly because, after all, the Holy Spirit knows this already. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't see the point of that myself. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not denying what you said. I think I'm just trying to put it in a, in a slightly different context, if that's all right. Well, Chris Green and Richard Hughes were speechless, so... Thank you, Gerald. Mm-hmm. Right. It's my Good. Anglicanism that I would Yeah, right, yeah. yeah but that's how I would see that. Question behind you, John. John, immediately behind you. Right. Um, I'm not for a moment questioning the rightness of um, animal welfare and acting responsibly, mm. but, but there seems as if there's quite a move towards awarding personhood to animals in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel that there's clearly something disturbing about that. And I wonder if you, if you agree with that, you could articulate what, what it is that may be so undermining about that move in society to give award personhood to animals. Well, I, yes, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, so I have to be very careful what I say. It's only based on observation. And, you know, I think it's probably um, because it's an awful lot easier to relate to an animal than it is to a person for the very simple reason that the animal doesn't answer back. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's you know, it, it's, we, you, you look at people, you watch people, I see this every day because I go out early in the morning and people walking their dog, you know, and having tremendous conversations <laughs> with the dog. And of course, the great thing is the dog always agrees. Uh, you know, and... I mean, let's face it, you know, if, 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 you, if, if, if that's what you want in life, you'd far rather walk the dog than, than walk another human being, especially your husband or wife, you know, who might dare disagree, and children or something like that. I mean, I, you see, I, I, think, I wonder whether this, is, this isn't it. This, it's it's the, the unwillingness and, or the, the failure or whatever to, to have real relationships with other people, which, of course, involve giving and taking, sharing and so on. Whereas you can substitute an animal, uh, you know, I mean, and, and have a great time. 
I mean, when I was a curate in East London, we had a woman next door to me. I mean, she had this budgie. And she was, she was I mean, I could hear through the walls, you know, because it was very thin, sort of, it was a ter- terrace house in East London. And she'd talk to the budgie for hours, you know, and listening to her talk to the budgie, you'd think she was a really nice person. She was an old witch, really. <laughs> you know. Um, because when she, she had to deal with other people like me, her next door neighbor, I mean, she was a completely different character. Uh, she couldn't relate to other human beings, but she had a wonderful time with this little bird. And, and that's what I think it is, myself. But I mean, as I say, I'm not a psychologist and I wouldn't want to go into this too, in too much depth, you know. But you do see some quite horrific things. I mean, I remember in the supermarket once seeing this man and his wife and the dog sort of going and the, and the sort of woman opened the door and you know put the dog very lovingly in the car seat at the back and so on and then looked at her husband and said get in you you know and off they went <laughs> tells you all you need to know doesn't it Frustrate somebody who might want to ask a question. Mr. Haig over here. You'll have to be quick, Mr. John. He'll be fit. I'll give you permission to put me down, Chairman, if you wish, but uh, <laughs> unlike the dog that bit you. Um, I must say, I've been absolutely um, thrilled and delighted with the uh, simple uh, and understandable way in which this profound subject has been approached and um, you haven't asked me to say thank you, but I feel I want to do that. Uh, and maybe the point that's in my mind is for next week or, or, or the week after. We've heard about the two natures of Christ, but if I'm the man, the average man on the top of the Clapham omnibus, I then want to say, well, where does hell fit into all this? And maybe that's a, a question for another time, but I just wanted to put up that mark, and not that I have any doubts about what's been, about what's been said, um, but God is not evil, um, uh, he can't be evil and, and, be, and be God, and we've had this wonderful uh, exposition of this profound subject, but I do just want to put up that, uh, that marker. Well, we haven't got the judgment seat of Christ coming up in the future, but do you want to have a stab at that as well? Yeah. Um... Yes, I think, I think that, of course, here you, you, you're coming down to the question that we really haven't had time to talk about tonight, and that is the whole nature of evil uh, and hell, and that evil is not a thing any more than love is a thing, uh, you know, and you won't find it in things. There are no things which are in the, of themselves evil, which is why campaigns to ban things... Uh, you know, as if you're going to improve society by banning things, never work. Uh, because, I mean, all right, some things may be more prone to being misused than others, uh, but, you know, you could hardly say, well, we can't have knives because knives kill people. Uh, you know, it's not the knife which is at fault, uh, you know. Uh, or, uh, uh, as I saw the other day, a, a, a sign which said some, advertised, advertising some very rich 
form of chocolate, you know, and it said this it has a sinful amount of calories. And I thought, well, it's not the calories that are sinful. Don't blame them. Um, you know, um, you know, we have this tendency to do this. And, and evil is, again, something which is only comprehensible in personal terms because it is rebellion against God. Only persons can be evil, not things. Uh, and so the devil is a person, so the devil is evil, can be evil. Uh, you know. But even the devil wasn't made evil. You see, he fell. Uh, and so I think that the, you have to think like this. And hell, of course, is... Um, is where the evil, uh, those who, who rebel against God, dwell. Um, to try to explain this, is a very interesting uh, explanation of this, which I've come across, which I just share with you. I'm not saying it's the correct explanation, but it may help us to understand how it's possible to have hell and a loving God at the same time. And that is that when you are in rebellion, when you are determined to have your own way, like a little child, you know, a little child who is determined to play with fire, let us say. The, his parents will, of course, hold him back, you know, drag him back, say, no, you can't do that, you know, you cannot go there. And the little child will, will experience this as torment because the little child won't get what he wants. And he can only see that one thing. That's what he wants. You see. But the parent, of course, is acting in love. And if we extrapolate this and say, well, those who rebel are in rebellion against God want to get as far away from God as possible. You know. Uh, but to get away from God is to get away from life, because God is life, the source of life the ultimate life, eternal life. And so therefore, to get away from God is to get away from life, and, and this is death. But God won't allow any of his creatures to achieve their aim in this respect, that God holds, us, holds people back, you know, from this, uh, from, uh, from eternal death. Uh, and, and like the child being, you know, held back from doing something harmful, uh, to himself, uh, so the, the you know the rebellious creatures, the rebellious people, are held back, prevented from achieving their aim. To them, this is torment. This is hell. But it's love on the part of God not to not to let them achieve their aim. You know, to force them to to go on existing when they don't want to. Now that's one possible explanation, but it, it seems, whether it's right or wrong, um, at least it, sh it demonstrates how you can be, how you can have a loving God and hell at the same time. Different way of looking at it. Right. Thank you. I'm sure you'd want me to express your thanks. You all had a very long day. I'm sure of that, and quite a taxing evening in the sense that we've been treated to profound things in a clear and simple way and thank you for that and thank you for answering our questions. I'm sure we could have go, go, gone on much longer. We've been going for well over an hour and a half. Thank you very much indeed for coming tonight and for presenting 
those thoughts on the two natures of Christ.